I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. As we head into another year of COVID, with an added helping of avian flu, monkeypox, and the usual seasonal flu on the horizon, I thought it would be a good time to look at the twin terrors of climate change and globalization, and how viral mutation impacts the spread of disease. Joining me is Charles River Consulting Physician, Dr. Peter Matos. Dr. Matos is a former military physician who has worked with the U.S. Department of Defense Global Emerging Infection Surveillance and Response System, and with the Centers for Disease Control. Welcome, Dr. Matos. Thank you, Mary. Happy to be here. I'm always happy to have you on because if if for nothing else, then I say that long name, (laughs) U.S. Department of Defense Global Emerging Infection Surveillance and Response System. I'm getting good at it. It's a good tongue. Yes. (laughs) So uh, what, if anything, do you see happening with monkeypox? Not much of anything. So what I can tell you is, first of all, it's spread by close contact from an infected person or animal by touching clothing or bedding used by someone, say with a rash, right? So mm-hmm. it's saliva or respiratory droplets that, that come in contact with a person's face or something like that. The current outbreak seems to be just focused mostly on men who have sex with men, but they also have outbreaks where people were not necessarily in that category. And it does seem like things have stabilized. The important thing is, you know, your risk of death from, say, getting monkeypox, it, obviously it's very jarring when you see those pictures, is less than 1%. Mm-hmm. And treatment consists of, you can give the smallpox vaccine, and there's also antiviral drugs that can relieve symptoms of monkeypox. And so what are the symptoms of monkeypox? Those would be fever, headache, swelling, achy muscles, and tiredness. And then you also would have this itchy rash and the lesions that you know, look kind of similar to, say, chicken pox, but mainly on the face, hands, and feet. And that, that's kind of unique, particularly to, to monkeypox. So it's hands and feet, face. I think the risk to the general population is low, but you know it's out there. And there's no way that something like monkeypox, which is spread through close contact, could mutate far enough to become airborne? No. And a matter of fact, the CDC just published the aerosol threat is not likely based on previous studies by different scientists around the world. So that is, that's highly unlikely. Well, that's a relief. So now that's out of the way. Back to our old friend covid We have seen so much mutation in this pandemic. Is that typical for a virus or is this the effect of being a novel virus to humans? So viruses have, it's very typical for viruses to mutate, but most of the time those mutations are not of any consequence. And with COVID specifically, last time I checked uh, the outbreakinfo.com or what's called the GSIAID, which is a website where people upload COVID variants. There's roughly a quarter million variants of which basically we've got 24 that we, you know we're tracking the alpha, the beta, delta, and now Omicron. Omicron is up to 72 sub-variants. And the important thing to understand is a pandemic is just that, pan. It means across the world. So it's a scope of disease that is just you know large. 
And because the scope of disease is so large, it allows the virus to mutate in a way that we don't see. So the way I explain it is with COVID, we've been getting four big curves every three to four months, right? So you get four curves a year. That's not endemic. That is pandemic. So in endemic disease like flu, you kind of get one bump a year and that's it. And we're done. That's not where we're at with COVID. And the reason we're getting so many new variants with COVID is because of the sheer number of cases. So we're in this weird space where if you're vaccinated and you live in um, a first world country where you've got access to vaccines, healthcare, antiviral medications, the risk is endemic. It's less than say seasonal flu. However, the risk is still a pandemic because we have all of these cases and I can't tell you which direction COVID is gonna go. Is it gonna keep going down the Omicron route and be less, you know, less virulent, less deadly? Or is it suddenly gonna take an offshoot and go in a different direction? The answer is I don't know. Time will be the honest adjudicator of all of this. You know, reasons to be encouraged. The vaccines are holding, we have antivirals. Reasons to be concerned would be the sheer number of cases. And when you have that many cases, the virus is able to evolve at a rate that is unprecedented. You know, not, it's not evolving every year, it's evolving every few months. That's, that's a pandemic. And I don't have anything to really model this after that has occurred previously in time that we have good data on. Yeah, you mentioned the, the vaccines and the antivirals, and obviously this is only anecdotal, but a few weeks ago, I finally got COVID. It was my turn. And uh, I have a pretty crappy immune system, and the vaccines and the antivirals worked great for me, um, and I got over it in a week, and it wasn't even as bad as some some of the bad colds I've had. So that was, that was encouraging. I'm not happy I got it, but I'm, I'm happy that I know <laughs> what to expect if when when I get it again it's almost, it seems like it's inevitable at this point that we'll all be reinfected. Yes. And the other point too, I would say is we're now having Omicron subvariants replace other Omicron subvariants. So the BA2 variant was predominant, you know, about two months ago and is still pretty much predominant throughout the U.S. But in the Northeast, there's kind of a New York variant called BA212. BA212 replaced BA2 kind of in the Northeast in a matter of six weeks. Why? Because there's so many cases. I don't think I know anyone that has not had COVID with this, you know, with the BA2 and the BA1 kind of evolution of the virus, you know, for this wave, so to speak. So why does a successful virus like COVID even need to mutate? So it's kind of natural selection, right? I mean, it's to find a better way to be more efficient, to infect more people, right? The goal of a virus is to survive. So it's always finding ways to, you know, basically survive longer and to, to infect as many things and as people as possible. That's kind of the natural order of evolutionary biology. That's how viruses evolve. Again, I go back to what I talked about before. We got over a quarter million sequences for COVID that are variants but we're only talking about 24 concerns. So most of the time, these, you know, these mutations are not consequential from a medical standpoint or from a societal standpoint. However, 
you know, it only takes one. So, you know, could we get a virus that's both more contagious and more deadly? We could low probability events happen, but I'm hopeful that that doesn't happen and we stay down the Omicron route. But time will be the honest adjudicator of all this. We'll just have to wait and see. You've kind of already answered my next question, but uh, just to be explicit about it, what is the best and worst case scenarios for the continuing mutation of COVID? And what do you think is the most likely middle ground? So I think that it seems to be staying down this Omicron route, and there's two new subvariants, BA4 and BA5, that look a little different. I suspect we will probably get another variant of concern. And remember, variants are rated from a variant of concern, which is the highest, most concerning type. Then the second is a variant under study. And then the third, which is the least concerning, is a variant under monitoring. And right now, I don't have any new variants in any of those categories. I just have lots of BA2 subvariants, like 74 different ones. So best case, it continues to be more infectious, but less deadly. Worst case, I think it, it kind of shifts back towards the Delta realm where it becomes more deadly. It's the same level of infection and it's not, you know, a nightmare scenario that is super deadly, but probably something that causes some bump in hospitalizations and in ICU cases, but antivirals will hold up against it. Our, our, we may have a problem with our vaccines, but we have the antivirals. Antivirals target how the virus replicates. So antivirals, if you think of HIV, right? HIV has evolved over 20 years, you know, over 30, 40 years. And now, you know, we're just starting to see some type of antiviral resistance strains with HIV. That's probably taken over 30 years to occur. The point of that story is to help you understand that if we get something that's a problem, we now have multiple antivirals in our tool chest to buy time to say, get an updated vaccine. So even if there's something that sets us back a little, I think we'll be, we're in a much better position and we're much smarter than we were, you know, two and a half years ago when this all started. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> and so moving away from just COVID and bringing climate change into this, how does a warming planet affect the spread of viruses? So it affects the spread of viruses in many ways. So a warming climate affects, you know, animals, right? So we're not really sure how the jump was made for COVID to humans, but we suspect it came from some type of animal reservoir. You know, they think bats. So if the environment is changing, that means animals are going to move to different areas. So now animals that maybe didn't interact before are now interacting. So maybe they can spread, you know, a fox from, I don't know, somewhere way down south in the U.S. now has migrated further north for whatever reason that would have never happened before. And now it mixes with, I don't know, a ferret. And I'm just making that up, right? Those events wouldn't have occurred without climate change. The second piece also is with global warming, water supplies, humidity, and those type of things. What we suspect is, you know, malaria is not, hasn't been a problem in the U.S. for, you know, over 100 years, right? Or more, you can look at old malaria maps. I remember being at Walter Reed, and you can see, like, the Mississippi River Valley, right, during, during the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, there, there was malaria everywhere. That's just not the case today. 
But as the world warms, these vector, we call them vector-borne illnesses such as malaria or dengue fever, I suspect they're going to start to creep into countries that we may not have seen. They may creep into the southern United States and even to the northern parts of Mexico. So I think that's one area of concern, you know, as people, animals um, migrate due to climate change, you're going to have mixing of different environments. And whenever you have that happen and you have displaced people, there's always a risk of some, it's like the perfect brew for uh, some type of outbreak or some type of virus to jump from, you know, say ferrets to humans or from birds to humans. You know, uh, everyone's heard of bird flu, right? The, those type of things. So I think the world is going to be more complex as time goes on when it comes to emerging infectious diseases. So unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that I think, you know, things like COVID would be like, we're done and we're, this isn't going to happen for another hundred years, similar to what happened with the 1918 pandemic. I don't think we're going to be that lucky this century. I think, you know, unfortunately, it's going to be more common. How often? I don't know. You know, every few decades, maybe, but I don't know. And the way we live our lives now is so international, right? I can get be on a plane at O'Hare in Chicago, and next to me, there's a plane to London. Next to just next to that is a plane to Sao Paulo. So it's really easy for organisms and viruses to, to spread rapidly throughout the world. So I think the world has got to come up with a really robust surveillance system to kind of track where we think these threats are and how to follow them. When I was in the military, there was a researcher, Johns Hopkins, that had a grant. They tracked hunters in different regions of Africa that hunted primates. And they tried to follow the hunter and their family to look to see if there were any, any primate DNA that had jumped to humans. They've been doing this probably since the mid-2000s. Well, the answer is they did find some primate DNA. Now, obviously, no viruses jumped or anything like that. But the point of that story is to just say those are the type of programs I think we're going to need in the future. We're going to need to follow where these emerging infectious disease threats will come from. That makes perfect sense. You know, you mentioned with the increase of globalization, people, people and things moving around, we're going to have to figure out a way to compile this. And I mean, luckily our computer systems have kept pace with our travel technology. So it seems like it's a, it's a possible scenario, although obviously very complicated. Yes. What kind of proactive steps can medical researchers investigate to counterbalance the inevitable spread of new viruses. So taking like a medical look at this issue. I think medically the development of new antivirals, which I think are always, you know, in the works, there's pharmaceuticals, there's research agencies around the world all over that are working to come up with new antivirals. So I think therapeutics are key. And then also I think, you know, possibly vaccines that, that might cover us against some type of emerging infectious disease or a threat that's been identified. And finally, I think the, the third piece, which in my opinion is the most important piece is if you don't know you have a problem, then you have a problem. So you have to find a way to be able to detect these outbreaks and to contain them quickly before we end up in like a COVID-like situation. So I think the world needs to work together on a robust 
medical surveillance system for emerging infectious diseases. That would be nice. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, avian flu or bird flu. There has been an outbreak of that in the United States this summer. Have you been following that outbreak as well? Yes, there's many outbreaks. Yeah, <laughs> they just don't all make the new. They just don't all make the um, the news. Yes, bird flu. You know, again, there's all these biologic threats all the time, and it doesn't mean that they'll necessarily become a problem. But I think people are definitely more aware because of COVID now, and I think the the press also is more more aware. I you know I kind of wonder about you know we were talking about monkeypox at the beginning. If we weren't in a pandemic, would that have been news? Maybe not. I, I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's kind of where we're at. But what do I think is going to happen with COVID, you know, next year? Hard to predict. I, I think we're going to get some type of wave, probably July-ish. Uh, what that looks like, I'm not sure. We'll definitely have an uptick in the fall because people will go back indoors and we'll probably have, a, you know, both flu and COVID again. I don't know what that's going to look like. Next year, I'm hoping, you know, a typical pandemic lasts three to five years based on historical data. I'm hoping that, you know, by next year, things are stabilized and, and we're to the end of this. I sure hope we don't go backwards and we're back in mask and we're back in restrictive travel and those type of things. It's really hard to predict, but, you know, generally a virus has to pick, does it want to be more contagious or does it want to be more deadly? It's very rare in nature to find a virus that is both super contagious and super deadly, because if you kill your host, then you can't survive. So that, that's generally the laws of, you know, evolutionary biology, so to speak. But, you know, low probability events happen. I don't think something like that will happen. But I, like I was talking about before, I think we will have probably a minor setback, but I think we'll be, we're well positioned to weather that storm. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I, I was curious. You say that a virus can choose to be more contagious or more deadly, and obviously, I'm not suggesting that viruses have, you know, logic systems that they can make conscious decisions. But it seems like more contagious is better. Why would what would be the evolutionary benefit of being more deadly? Um, you know, the example I would give is uh, I, I don't think there is one right? Because you can't really infect a lot of people. So like, look at Ebola, right? <clears throat> so mm -hmm. Ebola, if you get Ebola, um, you know, the death rate is, is quite high. It's not aerosol. We believe it's droplet. Uh, and it's on the far, um, basically, you know, if the left side of the curve is infectiousness and the right, far right side is, um, you know, deadly, right? Ebola is not super infectious, but it is super deadly. So it's kind of in the lower right corner, so to speak, of that curve. Whereas Omicron isn't very deadly. So it's at the far left and it's super contagious. So you almost, those are two extremes really right there. Mm -hmm. Could you get something that's right in the middle? You could, you could, but I, I, I don't think um, you're absolutely right. It doesn't make sense for a virus to evolve in a way that restricts its ability to infect people. I, I mean, ideally, the perfect virus would like to uh, just hop from person to person, not make them necessarily really, really sick. And um, you just never even know you're infected, which is sort of what COVID has done, right? 
most cases sometimes yeah have been, yeah right it have been asymptomatic so it's a really sneaky virus so to speak um but yes hopefully does that answer the question it does it does well thank you so much for joining us peter um it's always great to talk to you you are definitely a font of information when it comes to viruses oh you're most welcome my <laughs> pleasure mary have a good day thanks <laughs>